Thank you, Mary, for that. Who'd rather just listen to Mary play for the next hour versus listening uh, to me? I've missed you, Mary. Well, it is good to be back with you guys and uh, to be here uh, with uh, God's people in uh, this place. My name is Blair Cushman, and if I haven't had the chance of meeting you, would love to do that after the service. Um, and uh, you may have seen even our name on those uh, cool missionary prayer cards there. That's uh, that's that's really great. That's I'm going to keep those, and I'm going to continue to pray for those uh, things, uh, even with my own name on that list. And I uh, just want to give you a little bit of an update. Um, if you want to, you can open your Bibles, as we're going to get there in a minute, and uh, take out sermon notes in your pen and engage your mind and open your heart for God's Word. But I want to just give you a, a quick update on what God is, is doing in our midst. And so you know that at the end of August, can you believe that's been like six months ago, right? Time has flown. Our, my son has grown. His hair's grown out. Uh, our daughter is walking and, and all those things. But uh, we left for Chicago and uh, went through church planting training with uh, Harvest Bible Fellowship. And that was phenomenal. It was an excellent training. It was so neat to be there with, uh, there's 40 of us pastors that were participating in the training. Guys from the Caribbean, guys from Africa, guys from all over the U.S., all now doing what uh, Aaron and I find ourselves doing in planting a church. Um, and uh, and so there are 39 other brothers that are, know what I'm going through in uh, different contexts, of course. And uh, and so the friendships that we uh, gained with uh, there, the uh, understanding of church planting was uh, was was uh, was an incredible experience. Even though we were back in Bears country and you know in uh, Chicago, it was neat to be there uh, in Chicago as the Cubs won the World Series. Even though I'm a Brewers fan growing up in Wisconsin, it was still neat to be there, and the city was just wild. Yeah. You know? I, when it was, came to Game 7, all I knew is that no matter what the outcome of this game, the city is going to go wild, either into uh, sadness and uh, despair or into great gloating and idolatry. And we all know what happened there. Um, and it was it was crazy. But it was great, um, even better to come back. We got a few weeks of snow and all that. And then we got uh, came back uh, to Texas in this area just uh, right after Christmas, actually. And then we moved over to New Braunfels and have been there laboring uh, since then. And so Aaron and I are doing well and uh, appreciate your prayers uh, as you've been praying for us already and continuing to do so. Our children are adjusting now that we've, you know, it's been six, seven, eight weeks or so that we've been there, something like that. And so we're, we're developing routines, developing uh, friendships and all those things that come when you move into a new place. And so you're probably wondering about the church plant and how that is going, and it's and it's actually going very well. Uh, what the verse that comes to mind each and every day as we're about this is Psalm 118:23. This is the Lord's doing; it is marvelous in our eyes, because that's that's what's happening. God is building His church in New Braunfels. He, you know, I, I feel like David. When he says, "Who am I, and what is my house that you have brought us thus far?" You, you, you know me; I'm just a joker. 
You know, I'm, I'm nothing special, and yet God is going before us. He is glorifying His name, and Jesus is uh, building His church, and uh, and and it's just incredible as uh, we meet people and find people, those that have been there for a long time, uh, and then the you know the families upon families that are moving to New Braunfels that uh, want to be a part of a church like this. And so that's really the stage that we find ourselves in. We haven't launched Sunday morning services. Otherwise, it probably wouldn't be here right now. But uh, we're just in what's called core group phase. And so we're just uh, we're just gathering people um, and continuing to lay out our, our identity and saying this is who we are. This is the type of church that we're going to be. We're going to be a people who love God's word. And we're going to preach unapologetically, expositionally, uh, Sunday after Sunday. We're going to worship God. We're going to be a praying church and all those things that, that we want to define us. And so that's where we're at now as we meet in our our core group times on Sunday night. So we're just actually even meeting now every other week um, as we uh, as we do this and as God is bringing people to our numbers. So about Easter, we'll transition to meeting every night, uh, or every Sunday night, I should say, not every night. That would be something, wouldn't it? Um, but uh, every Sunday night and uh, with a target to launch uh, with uh, the school year in the fall. So around the 1st of September um, there. That's that's really our target, so we can gather people, get our, a good foundation, and uh, building what lasts takes time, right? And so we want to uh, we want to lay a good foundation in this season. Uh, looking forward to that day when uh, when when we get to launch. And so, if you ever are over in New Braunfels or you want to come over on a Sunday night to just experience core group, we'd invite you to do so. Um, definitely, when we get launched and all those things, I would invite you to uh, to come and participate in that. So. Um, a few ways that you can pray for us. I uh, want to uh, really encourage you to continue to do that because we do need your prayers. And so you may have seen if uh, you uh, got our email things, but when people ask, how can I pray for you? It's really my answer is the five Ps. And so if you got a pen and a paper, write these things down as you think to pray for us is uh, pray for people. And uh, we, we're not we're not numbers driven. That's not the thing. But we're just pray that God would uh, cro- cross my path and Aaron's path and the people in our core groups paths with others uh, believers or those who are not yet believers uh, who want to be a part of a church like this. So pray that God would uh, would give us people and and uh, that and He has. And so we're, right now we're at 26 adults and they come with 23 kids uh, as a part of our core group. And so that what that has led us to is this next P is we need a place. We need a place to meet. Right now we're busting at the seams. And so when we meet, we have the kids in our house for childcare, And then about a mile down the road, another core group family lives. And us adults meet in there. And that's just with committed people. And then we kind of have other people that are checking it out. And so can you picture having like 30 people in your living room trying to get to know one another and worship and pray? Yeah, it gets unless you have a mansion, it's pretty tight. So... High on my priority list is trying to find a place, even now, during core group, that we can begin to meet. Um, and that's proving to be a challenge, um, finding a place that's accessible, that's affordable, all of those things. Um, but uh, we're, we trust that God has the right place for us now and down the road when we launch. And so people, place, and then provision. Getting a church off the ground takes provision, and thankfully God has been generous. God's people have been abundant in uh, providing for us. Our core group is is uh, giving uh, sacrificially. Others are, and we're super grateful that uh, our needs uh, are are being met and and beyond, and the church is being taken care of. And so we're we're uh, thankful 
even now as we're mobile, but as we add other things, you know, those things increase. And so God's been good in that, but uh, we just ask for prayers in that regard, prayers uh, for partnerships. We have a great partnership here with Kerbal Bible Church and other churches, and we're trying to make other uh, connections locally of people who want to get on board and partner with us, who believe in the same way and who are committed to uh, to uh, catalyzing a church uh, like Harvest Bible Chapel. And then lastly, the fifth P is presence. Pray that we, we want to be where God is at work. And uh, we want to be where, where God is moving. And we want to be in his presence. And, and uh, we want when we meet, we want God to meet with us. Because that's where life change happens. And as, as we open his word and his spirit does his work, that's what we want. You know, Psalm 105, verse 4. Seek the Lord in his strength and his presence continually. And so that's our that's our uh, our desire as a church. And so as you think to pray for uh, me and my family and our church, um, there's uh, five things that can guide your prayers. So, ready for God's word now? All right, grab your Bibles if you haven't. Turn to Luke seven. Grab some uh, notes if you haven't, and a pen if you're of the note taking type. And as you do so, I want you to think about this question. As you think about your home, what words describe your home? You know, or or maybe what words do you want to describe your home? You want it to be known as a clean place, and maybe it's a messy place, right? You want it to be known as a palatial place, and it's uh, more of a ramshackle place. Maybe it's inviting, maybe warm. Maybe it's cold, maybe it's uninviting. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, what words, when you think of your home and the people that occupy it, what words come to mind? I think you can write them down if you want. Because I've been thinking a lot about this lately in regards to the church. I've been thinking, what words should describe our churches and the people that are within it? And so take a moment and write down maybe three words that come to mind when you think about words that describe the church and the people that occupy it. Write them down, think about them if you want. Words that would describe the church and the people within it. Any chance that welcoming, loving, and forgiving made your list? Any chance? Isn't it? Maybe some, maybe one of them, maybe all of them. But this is, like I said, something that I've been thinking a lot about lately as we're building a culture within a church plant. we got a clean slate. Right? We're bringing, there's people in and everybody has their own ideas and maybe their own agendas. But as we plant a church, these are things that are on my mind as we ha- get to start and build a reputation of what our church will be known about. But this isn't just something for a church plant. This is something that we must constantly be evaluating as a people of God who are a part of the church. And so, we want these things to line up with God's word, don't we? We want God's word to define and to uh, give uh, uh, instruction as to what we should be about and what God's church uh, should look like. And so the title of this morning's message is, This is What We Do, and we want Luke 7 to inform this. So read here, follow along with me in your copy of God's word in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to pick it up in verse 36. And read to the end of the chapter. It says this. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. 
When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Well, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said, where your sins have been forgiven, those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. An amazing passage of scripture here, isn't it? Almost an uncomfortable passage of scripture as we see these things going on. Could we imagine someone coming in and pouring perfume on our feet and kissing and wiping their hair? I mean, that this is, seems like a chaotic experience. And that's exactly what is really happening here. And so as we walk through this text and as we, as we want this to inform who we are, we see initially that we are to welcome without judgment. This is what we do. We welcome without judgment. Look at Jesus' example here. What does Jesus do to both the religious elite, the Pharisee, and that social outcast? He welcomes all who come to him. Right? Showing no uh, 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 judgment here as to the reputations of either of them, but he, he, he brings both of them near. He accepts the invitation to go into this Pharisee's house, and he also allows this woman to show him uh, uh, an awkward but an extreme amount of love. The Pharisee kept people at a distance. The Pharisee was judging, but the Jesus here, he is bringing this woman near. He is welcoming her, not worried about her reputation, but he is allowing her to come near. And this is, this, what's happened here is, is actually a great offense because in those days, you know, you wore sandals, you come in off the road, the roads were very dirty, not just with the dirt and the dust of the times and the weather and all those things, but with the refuse of, of, uh, you know, people were throwing out their windows and things. So to walk down the street was not a very pleasant experience. And so people's feet would be filthy. And so it was the custom of the day as you came into somebody's house that, uh, you would have a servant or somebody there, or if you didn't have servants, then you you yourself would wash their feet. And this Pharisee did not do that to his invited guest. A great offense to Jesus, 
And so we see here this really this this uh, great extremes here, this great offense, and then this great lavish love. This woman who comes in, she's a woman of the city. You get the connotations there, right, as to what type of woman this would be. She's a woman of the city, okay, someone of disrepute, and she has shown him extreme love by bringing in this a very expensive bottle of perfume, pouring it on his feet, and using her own hair uh, to to wash and to clean his feet. So extreme offense versus extreme love. And the picture here is that Jesus is welcoming them both. Jesus is welcoming both the religious elite and the social outcast, as I said. And what's really interesting about this is, is does this really define who the, the, the way that the church is? The way that we are? Are we welcoming without judgment? You know, this is what, uh, what, why people stay even within other uh, um, in, you know, non-Christian groups. It's why uh, Rosaria Butterfield, a prominent speaker, Christian lady, she's wrote a book called uh, Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, or Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And in that, she relates the story. She, she was a, a, a homosexual, tenured professor coming uh, out of that, who's now a believer but what kept her in that was just the welcome and the love and the acceptance of this community. And ultimately what brought her out was the welcome of a pastor and his wife into their own home and just befriending her despite all the other hang-ups that she had. And so there's, there's, a, there's this sense that people are drawn to those who are welcoming. And isn't this what we want us to be known for? Isn't this what we want believers and the church and our people, you know, to be known for? That we would be a place that welcomes without judgment. You know, that throws appearances out the window. It doesn't matter what somebody looks like as they come in, right? If they're dressed funky, if they have weird hair and piercings and all the other things that that probably mean that they run in these certain crowds, that should not be what keeps us at a distance, Especially if they've come into the church. Especially if they're here, we should we should embrace them. Yeah, we should bring them in. We should. And, and the opposite is also true. As we see somebody come in, you know, the guy who's got the perfect suit on and the tie, and uh, you know, his hair is perfectly parted, doesn't necessarily mean that everything is perfectly parted at home, right? That appearances can be misleading. I mean, what's the old adage? Don't judge a book by its cover, right? I think Jesus is doing that here as well as he is seeing to the heart. He is looking beyond the appearances and such should be the case with you and I as believers. We want to be a place that welcomes without judgment for this is what we do. This is what we do. And if, you know, we, as, as people come in and, and yeah, I, I know people look different. People are, are uh, uh, they, they may do and say offensive things, but unless they directly offend us, then I don't think that any of us here, none of us have the right to be offended by somebody else's sinfulness. Just because their inherent sinfulness doesn't doesn't mean that we should be offended by them because what else can we expect, right? What else can we expect of people who are apart from the Lord? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 9? That he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They couldn't do anything about it to get out of the situation that they were in. They were stuck in sin and and needed uh, Christ to come and uh, change their life. And so what do we need to do? We need to pray, repent, ask God to give us new eyes. To give you new eyes towards those that you meet. To not let that be the barricade that keeps us just based on appearances. 
that keeps us from befriending, that keeps us from welcoming those who are near. You see that Jesus is doing this, right? And really, in the same act, we see something else that he's doing. Not only is he welcoming without judgment, but he's also loving without condition. Did you catch that here? Jesus is loving without condition. In the same act of befriending and welcoming and and showing mercy and a closeness to both the Pharisee and the woman of the city, he's loving without condition. And so you have this scene here that that Luke sets out for us in in the initial verses here of what's happening and the invitation and the washing of the feet and all this and the Pharisee saying in his mind. What's ironic here is that 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 the Pharisee is is saying these things to himself. You know, if this guy was a prophet, you know, a spokesman for God, a person, he's saying this to his mind in his mind, not out loud, not necessarily to Jesus. And Jesus responds to him. Jesus, the irony is that. He's he's like, this guy isn't a prophet, and Jesus knows exactly what's on that guy's heart. He knows exactly what's on his on his heart. And so he says to him, uh, you know, Simon, I have something to say to you. So we learn the Pharisee's name. Can you imagine that? Being caught in your thoughts, right? Like, this guy, you know, Pastor Chris, he doesn't know nothing. Hey, Blair, I have something to uh, say to you here. <laughs> caught me. And so he says, say it, teacher. And he, he lays out this, this great, um, this parable here. Money lender, two different guys here. Yeah. He's exposing this lack of love and this overflowing love. And he tells this parable now of a money lender. So it's kind of like this. So a denarii, if, you, if you're unfamiliar, denarii is what would be a day's wage. Okay, you work for a day. They didn't. They didn't have hourly pay. There was no minimum wage per per hour. It's just, hey, you work today, you get this amount of money. Okay, as a denarii. And so we see here two different sets here. One guy who owes fifty denarii, which is you know fifty days of work, versus uh, what? How much else? Five hundred. So over a year's worth of work. That's a big debt, right? Just take whatever you make per year and multiply that by one and a half and that's you know that's really what you have right your whole year and then approximately another half a year and so that's a that's a lot of money right and so who do you think loves him more and so the the answer is obvious right if ken loans me uh five bucks and he loans neil over here 500 bucks and then he forgives us both who's going to love ken more neil's going to love him more right and that's what's happening here this is a powerful thing as Jesus is, is pointing out this act of welcoming, this act of loving and bringing people near without condition and just how powerful and how great it is as we see people's lives transformed. There's a, I've, I've been reading this, these books by Marilyn Robinson lately. Anyone familiar with her as an author? She's a Christian author. She's written some nonfiction things and some fiction books. And uh, she has a trilogy. Uh, the first one was Gilead, and she actually won a Pulitzer Prize for it. And then she's written uh, a sequel and a... What's the third one again? And a third book? I don't remember. Um, called uh, Home and then uh, Lila. And in the story, it's actually... There's uh, two friends, two retired pastors. One a Presbyterian and the other a Congregationalist. And they're, they're both... Uh, 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 very old, one's retired, one's still preaching, and the one that's retired had eight kids and one son that was a delinquent son. One son that even as he was a kid and now he comes back into the story later in life, he's like in his 40s, and uh, he's just, he's got a whole wake of sinfulness in his past. 
you know, and he has a reputation uh, throughout the community and and beyond of uh, his childhood exploits and and all those things. And yet, what is so powerful in the story is this father's love, this unconditional love for his son, who time after time fails and betrays him, runs away, comes back, uses him for money, all back and forth. Didn't hear from him for twenty years. His mom died, and he didn't even come to the funeral. Like great betrayal. And yet, the what weaves itself throughout the whole story is this father's unconditional love for a son that has hurt him immensely. That's who would be, like in the story, a son of the city, you know, and all that that uh, contains. And it's a powerful portrayal. And even the son, he, he, as he comes back, there's kind of these awkward attempts to lavish love upon his father and do these things, and it just never goes well. But again, a powerful portrayal. This is a love without condition. You know, and when we extend this love without condition, when we uh, set aside the appearances, this is what draws people in. This is what cancels debt. And that mutual love for one another in return, right? This is what Jesus has called us to do. We see the Father's example. We see Christ's example here. We see the example in this story here of Jesus doing it. And we, in turn, are to love as well. What's the great, uh, the, the, the new commandment that uh, Jesus gave in John 13, right? It's new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And so there's a priority that we do this as believers. Because there's a great power in doing it. Because by this, they will know that you are my disciples. And so there's a great priority, there's a great power, there's a great example, and there's great impact. Because this is what others see, and this is what defines Christians who love one another without condition, who welcome one another without judgment. But tied in with all this as well is forgiveness, isn't it? Because we forgive without limit. We forgive without limit. And all wrapped up here in this story, now you know how the, the parable uh, ends, or well, the parable ends and then Jesus explains it and he says, well, who's, who's the one who's going to love me more? Well, it's, it's the one who's been forgiven more. And so within this, Jesus, he's forgiving without limit and he's calling us to as well as people who love God. And so the more that we draw from the forgiveness well, the greater than the love and welcome, I think, that comes out of it. And in in this story, in these three concepts, I think, are really tied up together and they're inseparable almost. They're our ability as believers to welcome and to love and to forgive. Because they're all a part here in this story and they really should be true of all of us. They come as a package deal. Because, beloved, doesn't this, isn't this what captures the gospel? As you think about the gospel and what that is, of our own sinfulness and of Jesus drawing us near to himself by his spirit, we see... A God welcoming people, sinful people who did not deserve it to himself. We see a God loving without condition and forgiving these people without limit. That is the gospel, beloved. That is the gospel. If you are apart from Christ, that is what is happening. That God is welcoming you. God is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He is saying, come to me, you who are caught in sin. I will love you and I will forgive you as you repent of your sin and, and, and come to me. And we as believers, here's the thing, we as believers, as we extend this same thing. You don't have to turn here in the Bibles, but just just follow with me here. Is what does Romans 15, 7 say? 
Welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed to you to the glory of God. We're to be a welcoming people. What does it say in 1 John 4.19? We love because... Right. He first loved us. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another. God in Christ has forgiven you. And so we who have experienced the welcome and the love and the forgiveness of God are to then extend it to one another. This is what we do, beloved. This is who we are to be as individual believers, as Christians in our own home, and should be the reputation of the body of Christ. And so these things come as a package deal. And so what's that, what's that clashing here? What's, what's at stake in this passage is really two different paradigms, right? The Pharisee is saying, no, this lady must behave the way that I do. She must believe the way that I do. And then I'll befriend her. Then I'll embrace her. Then I will bring her near. But Jesus turns that on its head, doesn't it? Doesn't he? Doesn't he say, no, you, I will befriend you first. I will draw you near and then, then we'll take care of what you believe and how you behave. But come near to me. Let me show you how to live your life. For how could anybody, the pharisaical way of thinking is just backwards. How could anybody change the way that they believe and change the way that they think apart from God doing a work in their life through God's people who have already experienced that, right? That is how it happens. God is using us who have experienced that to show that and to make be an example of that in other people's lives, those who are apart from Christ. And so as you think about your own life, as you think about the way that your uh, life and your home and your church is known for, what paradigm are you operating under? Will you, I'll befriend you once you get your life in order. Or come on, come, come, come near me. Come near. Let's, I'll be your friend. I'll embrace you. You belong with me, and we'll figure these things out. And so what keeps us from this? You know? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, okay, we get it, right? I mean, we get it. These things aren't new concepts, right? We as believers should welcome without judgment. We should love without condition. And we, we, we must forgive without limit. You've probably heard many sermons, if you've been in church for any length of time, on these things. But what keeps us from that? Have you examined your own heart? Have you examined what uh, prevents you or why why we, we don't do these things? Well, I've got five F's for you, that uh, reasons that I came up with. And the first, I think, is forgetfulness. I think it's forgetfulness. I think we fail to remember where we came from. We fail to remember that we were once a man or a woman of the city. That we were once apart from Christ and he welcomed us and loved us and has forgiven us. We, we just forget that, especially as we, we mature and we, we, we get beyond uh, that initial point. We've, we've lost our first love and that first, the, the first zeal that we had for our salvation. And so just maybe as time goes on, we forget those things. Or maybe we were saved at a young age and we don't really remember our sinfulness. And, and now we've just, all we've really known our whole life is what it means to be a Christian. And so we, we just have no concept and we can't relate to those who are apart from Christ. And so maybe we're forgetful and we need to remember. We need to remember what God has done for us. Or maybe it's faulty thinking. 
Maybe it's a misunderstanding of key theological doctrines that we that we love, like predestination and election. And we think of those things as a way out of evangelism and, and of befriending people when exactly that's that's not what those things uh, give us the right to do. Those are doctrines that we know and that we love, but it doesn't negate the uh, responsibility of us as believers to be welcoming and loving and forgiving to those people that we Love. Maybe it's not just faulty thinking on theological things. Maybe there's just this idea of, well, are, does this mean we're just going to let everybody in? Does this mean our church is going to turn into a circus and there's going to be all kinds of people in here and all kinds of things? And we just, we, 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 we have these wrong ideas about what this means. And maybe, maybe the church would turn in, there would be lots of different people within our realms. But that's okay. Because they're coming to hear the gospel. They're coming to be around God's people. And where else would we want them anywhere else than among us, right? Than among God's people. What else keeps us? I think it's because maybe we're frigid. We're frigid. We've lost our compassion. We've become cold. Maybe we reached out once to a person and we, we, we thought, okay, I'll, I'll be a welcome person. I'll love people. I'll, I'll look beyond appearances. And it was rejected. And you got the Heisman, right? And they're like, yeah, right, I've, I've been around people like you before, you know? And that one rejection, you're like, I'm not doing that again. I'm not putting myself out there. I'm not risking uh, that type of, of uh, relational rejection again. And so it's just we've, we've become frigid. We've become cold and lost our compassion for the unbeliever. Maybe we value our privacy and our personal space so much that that, uh, uh, that that those things have become more important to us than somebody's eternal destiny. This has caused us to be cold and frigid towards unbelievers. And really, I think these things boil down to even fear. And we fear. That's what keeps us. That's what keeps us from doing what we ought to do. We fear reputation contamination, Right? That, do you know what it means that if I let a person like that into my house? What people are going to think? If I'm seen having lunch with a person who's dressed like that, do you know what people are going to think about me? I'm never going to be able to have business. Nobody's going to uh, relate to me. We fear that they're going to contaminate our kids. That they're going to contaminate our, our, our family. And so we're like, oh, I, don't, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I can't go there. Beloved, do we believe in the power of God or not? Believe in the power of God to change people's lives. Maybe we just fear what they're going to see behind the curtain. We don't want to let anybody in. We don't want to befriend. We're not going to welcome and love and forgive because if they really knew what my life is really like and what goes on, you know, uh, not on Sundays, they're going to see a different picture than, uh, than what I'm portraying. When I've got my church clothes on, right? And so we fear these things. And lastly, what keeps us, I think this might be the worst of all, is that it's faithlessness. Beloved, what overcomes all of these things? What overcomes? What is it that changes people's lives? It's the gospel, right? It's when God welcomes and loves and forgives people. And I think that some of us, maybe we, we value these other things or we fear these other things at the expense of we're not really that confident that God still changes lives. That God is still at work transferring people out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, right? 
And God is still doing that. God is still at work among his people. And we can be confident that he is at work even today changing lives, even in a hostile culture, even when there's all kinds of craziness going on, that God is still at work taking people out of the pit, taking people out of these false identities and out of these these sinful lifestyles. God is still doing that. And God is still doing that in our midst. And so we can be a people of great faith that when we emulate Jesus in the way that he treated people, even people that were different than him and had a bad reputation, and we see a woman who has changed, your faith has saved you, go in peace. We don't save them. We don't have the power to forgive sin. Only Christ does. But as we bring people near and we introduce him to them, we see God doing this. And so let us be a people of great faith. Let us be a people of great faith and not faithlessness. That God can't do it or he's not going to do it. But let us be bold and daring. Because what are the benefits of doing this? What are the benefits? And if we welcome without judgment and love without condition and forgive without limit, is that we do actually witness God at work among us. Fulfilling the great commission of making disciples, of, of saving people. And when we see that, that increases our faith, which increases our worship, which brings more glory to God. And isn't that what we want? Whatever we do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. Isn't that what we want to see in everything? God glorified in how we live our lives. Isn't that what we want to know? Isn't that what we truly, genuinely want in a person's life who is far from Christ? And so all of that, with that being the potential, shouldn't those alleviate all those things that keep us, right? So let's go back to where we started here. Beginning of the message. Here as we close. Let's go back to where we started and what we wrote down. And what defines the church? When What words come to mind as you think about the church and this church or just the church at large? I know I'm using that as a, as a broad statement of God's people gathered together, this local body, but the church universal. Let's think about that. Let's assess your own life. Where are we missing the mark? Where do we need to uh, emulate Jesus more? How do we need to change how we act? To be more welcoming and loving and forgiving. To be a church that is known that way. To be a people who are known that way. To be a businessman or a mom or a dad or an employee or whatever you're known for. To be known as someone who welcomes without judgment. Who loves without condition. Who forgives without limit. Because beloved, this is what we do. This is what we do. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are um, today in awe that you have welcomed us, that you have loved us, that you have forgiven us. And we thank you for a a powerful story from your word that, uh, that, that, that shows a great example of Jesus as to how we are to live. We see our own selves in that story as really the the woman of the city. And yet we have experienced your welcome, your love, and your forgiveness. And now we get to extend that to those that you would cross paths with us. So God, convict us where we need to. 
change our mind, change our thinking, change our heart in these things. Let us have compassion on those that we encounter. Let us be invitational in how we live our life. God, would you do that in me as an individual, as us, as your children, and as collectively as your church, both here in Kerrville and in New Braunfels and across the globe. Father, would you do your work and uh, maybe there's somebody here today that uh, is far from you. Pray that you would chase them, that you would pursue them, that you would welcome them to yourself, that you love them and forgive them in the way that only you can do as God Almighty. So we pray in Christ. Amen.